it's mushroom season here on Vancouver Island, and so many of us are out foraging in the woods searching for edible treasures emerging from the soil. What happens when we dig underground and look at the diversity of living creatures and microbes? On this episode, we're examining the connection between soil, antibiotics, and Borrelia burgdorferi, the bacteria that leads to Lyme disease. Dr. Kim Lewis is a researcher specializing in molecular science. He studies persister cells that lead to tolerance to antibiotics, uncultured bacteria of the environment, and the microbiome. Dr. Lewis is a university distinguished professor and director of the Antimicrobial Discovery Center at Northeastern University in Boston. Dr. Lewis also works on drug discovery, which is the process through which new medicines are identified. He joins us today from Boston. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Lewis. Uh, thank you, Sarah. How did you become interested in studying Borrelia burgdorferi? Uh, well, my lab has been working on a number of infectious uh, diseases, and I've been watching what's happening uh, in the field of Lyme. And uh, not much has been happening from my perspective. I mean, the pathogen that causes Lyme disease was very well defined as Borrelia burgdorferi. Uh, the treatment is pretty short with standard antibiotic doxycycline. Uh, but then a part of the patients, about 10%, go on to develop a, a condition that we do not understand very well, a chronic Lyme. And that's what piqued my interest uh, to this disease. Yes, well, I think many people would certainly agree with you that there hasn't been enough research done in this field. How did your research lead you to working with soil in relation to studying microbes? Right. Well, most antibiotics that we currently have uh, in the clinic come from soil microorganisms. So, uh, you'll, of course, you will recall you know, penicillin, tetracycline, streptomycin. These are all probably common names that everybody recognizes. Uh, well, soil microorganisms, bacteria and, and microfungi, as we call them, uh, they uh, compete with each other and they fight out their differences with antibiotics. And then we borrow these compounds from them and use them to fight our pathogens. So it's this whole battle that's happening underground that you're studying. Yes, indeed. Oh, that's amazing. And when you're working with soil, is the research methodology somehow different as opposed to just looking at microbes in a Petri dish? Uh, well, it's, it's only different uh, in the sense that you, first you need to uh, isolate uh, bacteria from soil. Uh, and uh, there is, therein lies a bit of a conundrum uh, because uh, only about 1% of bacteria that live in soil uh, are going to grow on our petri dishes, and the rest are called uncultured or uh, the microbial dark matter. And so that's one of the things that uh, attracted me to this field. And we, with my colleague Slava Epstein, developed methods to grow these mysterious dark matter uh, bacteria. That sounds very intriguing. I definitely want to learn more about that. 
Uh, well, it's, so uh, so the phenomenon itself was described in late 19th century. So it's the oldest was a, the oldest unsolved problem in microbiology, uh, and uh, and of course you know people spend uh, a long time, a hundred years to be uh, to be exact, you know, tinkering with the media, trying to see if you add this or that, and so maybe uh, you'll get more uh, growth. Uh, but that didn't work out. So then we'll, we decided we'll do something different. Uh, we will grow soil bacteria where we know for a fact that they will grow. And that is in their natural environment. And so we came up with a simple gadget. And you know, we call it the diffusion chamber where you take a sample of soil. Uh, you, you, you get the bacterial cells from that sample by simply you know, shaking it uh, with a little bit of water. Uh, and then those bacteria, we sandwich them between two semi-permeable membranes. And that device goes back into the soil. So now everything, small molecules can pass through the pores of those semi-permeable membranes, but cells cannot. So now we have captured bacteria and we're growing them essentially in the sterile environment and inside that chamber. Uh, we trick them because they don't know that something happened to them. They're in full contact with uh, the molecules from their environment. And not surprisingly, they grow. Once they grow, then we can adapt them to growth on the petri dish. We call that domestication. <laughs> domestication. <laughs> I like that. Um, and so what is the new antibiotic that you're looking at now that might be potentially uh, used for treating Borrelia eventually? Yeah, that's, that's uh, I must say, is, is, a, is, a fascinating, is a fascinating story. Uh, so we uh, realized that uh, some of the problems uh, with antibiotics in general, and specifically with Lyme disease, is that antibiotics, well, they uh, will kill your pathogens. They will also, in the process, wreck your microbiome. So uh, as we now more and more appreciate, their useful uh, bacteria are symbionts that live uh, in, in the gut and affect almost every aspe aspect of health and disease. Uh, and so uh, we had a reason to believe that uh, chronic Lyme, uh, at least one component of chronic Lyme, may be a consequence of that wrecking of the microbiome when you're treated with broad-spectrum antibiotics. The only way to properly test that hypothesis, actually, is to get an antibiotic that only kills Borrelia burgdorferi, right? nothing else, doesn't harm your microbiome, uh, and then see whether treating uh, patients with that compound will prevent development of PTLDS. The immediate advantage, uh, uh, the immediate benefit uh, to the patient uh, from such a compound will be, of course, that you, you're not going to have side effects of damaging the microbiome whether or not it's linked uh, to chronic Lyme. Anyway, so, so we set out uh, uh, to search for such a compound, and we placed a bet, uh, on, uh, placed a bet on Mother Nature, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. uh, betting that nature would bother to evolve a compound that selectively kills spirochetes that live in the soil. Borrelia burgdorferi has a spirochete, right? It's sort of a spiral-shaped bacteria, a special group of bacteria. Uh, and so we started testing a soil bacteria from our collection uh, against Borrelia burgdorferi for their ability to inhibit its growth. And in parallel, we tested them against some other uh, common bacteria, staph. 
So everything that uh, that killed Borrelia and staph were not interested, and that's your typical broad-spectrum antibiotic like doxycycline uh, that's used to treat Lyme disease. And then we hit upon a particular bacteria, uh, Streptomyces hygroscopicus, uh, that was making something that only hit Borrelia burgdorferi, but not staph. So it was making a selective antispiroketal compound. And I was convinced that this is going to be a novel molecule because we don't know of any natural product antibiotic with that uh, unusual property, only killing spirochetes. Yeah, but then when we determine the structure of this compound, it turns out that it's an old abandoned antibiotic uh, called hygromycin A, discovered in 1953. Yeah, so a very long time ago. Uh, and uh, the reason I never heard of it, even though you know I study antibiotics all my life, is because it's a lousy antibiotic uh, from a <laughs> conventional perspective. You know, it has very poor activity against our common pathogens like you know staph and strep and E. coli, but it's exquisitely potent against spirochetes like Borrelia burgdorferi or the spirochete uh, Treponema pallidum that causes syphilis. Uh, so that was that's how we that's how we found this compound. Well, that's amazing, and that it's exquisitely potent, and and that it actually d- differentiates and targets the spirochetes sound very significant for your research. Yep. And uh, what are biofilms? Biofilms. So biofilms are uh, it's a mass of of bacterial cells. Let's say a typical case: you have a catheter. And then uh, it got contaminated uh, with a bacteria. And that, that bacterial cell forms a colony, a mass of cells. That mass of cells covers themselves with an exopolymer, uh, commonly known uh, as uh, uh, probably uh, it's gunk or something like that. <laughs> uh, and uh, slime is a better word, probably. Okay. Slime, right, right. Um, and that becomes extremely difficult to treat with antibiotics because most antibiotics don't act completely alone. They act sort of in concert with the immune system. So antibiotics kill some bacteria, then the immune system kills some bacteria, and you clear the infection. But this slime prevents the immune system from reaching into the biofilm. So now... Uh, you need an antibiotic that will kill all bacteria. But that's very difficult to do because all bacterial species produce the small subpopulation of dormant cells that we actually discovered in the biofilm, which explains why the biofilm infection is, is often chronic and so difficult to treat. And when you look under the microscope, what do those biofilms actually look like? Can you see them? Uh, oh, yes, of course. Um, so it, it looks like uh, a so s- the surface layer is going to be the slime. And then under the surface layer, there are going to be cells. And often the biofilm has architecture, has a sophisticated architecture with columns of cells and channels where liquid uh, and nutrients can pass throughout the biofilm. That's amazing. And then you've also been looking at persister cells. How do those function? Yes. Yeah, so, so I so I briefly mentioned those. Uh, the way those the way those function uh, is they go into dormancy. So let's say there's a growing population of cells like uh, like E. coli or Staph, um, and then 
uh, one thing that happens uh, in all cells, uh, including our cells, uh, there is uh, yeah, a low probability with a low probability uh, some genes that uh, uh, that have to be turned on in order for the cell uh, to make proteins or to make energy. Uh, those those genes randomly turn off. It's sort of a low probability random random event. We call that uh, we call that noise, molecular noise, if you will. Um, and so now you got uh, a cell where a gene that was supposed to be on and turning out, helping to churn out energy, that gene is off. So that cell goes into temporary dormancy. Well, while it went into dormancy, antibiotics cannot kill it because antibiotics kill uh, active cells. They need active functions to, to, to corrupt them and kill. And you get to this small subpopulation of cells uh, that survives the hit uh, of antibiotic. When antibiotic concentration drops, uh, those are the cells that are going to survive. They mm -hmm. the biofilm or the population in the blood or, or, or whatever. And so you get a, a difficult to treat to relapsing infection. And are the Borrelia persister cells quite different then from other microbes? No, they're not. So we studied uh, persister cells of Borrelia. They are in principle uh, similar. They're also genes that are noisy and it's the energy producing genes that uh, turn, on, turn off uh, with low probability and produce uh, persisters uh, that survive uh, hit by antibiotics. And do you see a difference in persister cells between acute or chronic Lyme? Uh, well, you see, in acute Lyme, of course, you have the pathogen, you have a mix of regular cells and persisters. In chronic Lyme, one of the uh, one of the very difficult issues with chronic Lyme is that we cannot detect the pathogen mm -hmm. in patients with chronic Lyme. We cannot uh, culture it or identify it by other methods. So whether it's there or not, we we do not know. It's possible that some cells are hiding somewhere. But it's also possible that the uh, you know the the pathogen and treatment with uh, broad spectrum antibiotics have wrecked the immune system, and now you're getting something that looks like uh, uh, an autoimmune disease or like long COVID, where uh, the virus is probably gone from patients with long COVID. Again, uh, it cannot be detected, uh, but the the symptoms very very similar to symptoms of chronic Lyme persist. Yeah, it's quite remarkable, the similarities, really. Um, are there other strategies to eradicate persister cells? Uh, well, it's interesting that, that, that you ask. Uh, so one is, in a way, straightforward. Uh, so a number of years ago, we identified uh, an antimicrobial compound that actually uh, kills persisters. So, so it kills both regular cells and dormant cells. Uh, it, this this compound has has an amazing mechanism of action. It, uh, it turns on degradation of proteins uh, in the bacterial cell, and now the bacterial cell digests itself, right? So commits suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, probably one of the most amazing mechanism of actions for antibiotics that I know. Anyway, mm -hmm. so while that's all, so so that. Um, uh, compound, uh, it's what's a long name, acyl peptide. Uh, it is now in development for staph and several other common pathogens, but unfortunately, it doesn't act against Borrelia burgdorferi. Mm -hmm. 
So that's sort of that's one approach. But we, of course, are on the hunt for other compounds that are going to have a, uh, an ability to kill persisters of, of spirochetes as well. But the, the other approach is, is uh, uh, it doesn't require any new antibiotics. So the other approach is based on the, on the idea of pulse dosing, uh, that we actually tested uh, in a biofilm formed by staph, and it works pretty well uh, in that case. Uh, and, and also in a test tube, also uh, sterilizes borrelia in a test tube, including its persisters. So, uh, so you have, let's say, a population of bacteria in the test tube, regular cells and persisters. You add a, an antibiotic, uh, something like uh, amoxicillin, a conventional antibiotic, kills regular cells, persisters are alive. Now you wash away the antibiotic, allow the persister cells to wake up, but not to restore the initial population. So now mm-hmm. they're vulnerable and you hit them with the next dose. You repeat that pulsing a couple of times and you completely eradicate the population. Uh, so that is an example of how you can, by sort of clever dosing, you could in principle get rid of persistence. That's great. What is next for you in the stages of drug discovery? Mm. That you can share with us, <laughs> right? Sure, sure, sure. I, I, I understand. I understand. So, uh, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you one. I, I cannot tell you everything because <laughs> time and your uh, viewers, uh, though patient, I'm sure have a certain attention span. Um, so, um, I would. I'll tell you one thing that uh, that I'm pretty excited about at the moment, uh, and that my team is working on. Um, so, so we've been wondering, uh, is there a group of bacteria on planet Earth uh, that uh, has the same requirements for antibiotics as we do? Uh, so uh, do, what is our current need in antibiotics? Now, well, uh, the current need is for compounds that are going to be uh, non-toxic, uh, that are going to uh, that are going to be effective against uh, uh, particularly nasty pathogens like gram-negative bacteria and Borrelia falls into that category. Uh, and not much compounds uh, discovered against that. Very tough to, to find anything new against that group. Um, it's going to travel through the tissue, so it would be systemically available. All those good things that we expect from an antibiotic. So, so we're wondering if there's a group of bacteria that actually had to acquire antibiotics with exactly these properties. And we hit upon such a group of bacteria. And these are symbionts that live in the gut of uh, nematodes. So nematodes oh. are little worms that live in the earth. Uh, and then they, many of these nematodes, the ones that we're particularly interested in, they're called entomopathogenic nematodes. They infect insect larvae, infect insect larvae. Uh, the larvae release uh, antibiotics and help protect that food source. And then the nematode and this bacteria called Photorhabdis eats up the larvae. Uh, but these uh, compounds that the, the Photorhabdis releases, they, sh- they have to be able to travel through the tissues of the nematode. 
so uh, they have to be non-toxic to the little worm, and they have to be able to kill the nasty bacteria that attack that food source. And those bacteria are very similar to our pathogens. So that sort of fulfills the, that entire list. Now, these nematodes, by the way, you can buy them at, uh, on Amazon. <laughs> Yeah, they're sold on Amazon for gardeners. Uh, you can sort of uh, take those nematodes, sprinkle your favorite, uh, <laughs> and you know, and it will not be chewed up. Uh, uh, it's uh, by, by insects. So we went looking for new antibiotics in that group of bacteria, and we found uh, several new antibiotics. One class, really, really fantastically interesting compounds that we published two years ago. Uh, darobactins. Um, and now we have two more groups of bacteria coming out uh, of that class. And, and that sort of tells us that you know, looking for creatures that have had similar requirements as we for medicines can be a very productive way of finding new drugs. Oh, that just sounds remarkable. Well, we will be following all of your research closely and love to have you back on the podcast to tell us more in the future. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Sarah. That was Dr. Kim Lewis with literally his groundbreaking research. I know many of you are following and we all hope this leads to a new effective treatment. I love learning about this exquisitely potent antibiotic that doesn't damage the microbiome. How lucky we are that he placed a bet with Mother Nature. Thank you everyone for listening. Stay safe in the outdoors. Mm -hmm.